Today on episode number 242 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Kambi's Hamadani discusses using virtual labs and immersive reality to enhance student learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. In continuing my partnership with the Cal State University System, I get to speak to many of their Innovation in Teaching Award winners, and today's episode is no different. Today, I get to speak with Dr. Kambiz Hamadani. His research involves the development and application of single molecule biophysical methods to study protein folding, function, structure, dynamics, and evolution. He's the principal investigator of the first primarily undergraduate single molecule biophysics research lab in the world at California State University, San Marcos. Dr. Hamadani is a highly dedicated teacher scholar and is excited about the prospect of developing and using virtual labs and immersive virtual reality experiences to enhance student learning in his courses. Combis, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you very much for having me. I saved the last line of your bio for when you were on the line because I loved it so much. So I'm going to read it with you here and we can start from there. Absolutely. His enthusiasm about innovative instructional technologies and fearless experimentation is driven by his commitment to reach as many students as possible. I thought that was really intriguing, this idea of reaching as many students as possible. And I wonder if you'd reflect for a few minutes, has that always been your goal as someone who teaches in higher ed? Or is that something you began to pursue after you'd been doing it for a while? I guess I feel like, no, it's always been a, a major driving force behind my pursuit of, of academia in general. I think that students want to learn, and there's a lot of them out there. I, as an undergraduate, was one of them, and I sought out many different opportunities to to do research in faculty labs, and it was tough. It was tough to get a foot in the door, and I felt that, and that stayed with me for, for you know, throughout my graduate career and, and as a postdoc and now as a, as a faculty member, and I feel like students that have that desire and drive to learn how to do research and to get involved in research, those doors should be open to them and getting them to the the point where they can be independent researchers, you know, is something that is well worth putting some time and energy into. So as a grad student, I did a lot of outreach activities to community colleges and had high school student interns in my mentor's lab that that I was mentoring myself. And I think that with the power of the internet, with all of the different mechanisms for broadcasting knowledge, faculty have many more communication lines open to them. And why not use them? Make more doors available to students. 
that feeling you described that you can recall so well can sometimes become a distant memory for some of us where we don't put ourselves in enough situations where we are having to learn new things. I just did a pilot of a a series of games that I'm working on for faculty development. And some of the faculty I was working with were saying, Oh, I'm not sure, you know, that was hard. I'm not sure I like that. I kind of just more like to talk. It was, you know, and, and they're really describing being in something unfamiliar. How does this thing work? And that that feeling is uncomfortable. But yet, I think we as faculty need to put ourselves in it as often as we can. But the other thing about your work, too, is reaching as many students as possible. At some point in your teaching, you discovered that you weren't reaching quite as many as possible. Could you talk a little bit about maybe when you started to see evidence that some of your teaching could be improved with looking looking at redesigning your courses and and again how that evidence came about and then and then what sure. process you went about yeah so of course we only have a certain amount of time and energy and dollars that that can be put into you know the resources necessary to reach students and to teach them and that is i think something that we as you know teachers in higher ed struggle with constantly i felt it in a course that I've been teaching now for a number of years, which is an upper division general biochemistry course that is, you know, mainly chemistry majors and biology majors take this course close to their last semester. And it's a very, very diverse. And to some extent, the two different populations of students that I have in that course have, have been taught to think about things in, in, in two very, very different ways. Think about science, think about matter uh, and biochemistry in, in two very different ways. The biologists tend to think about cells and memorize content in order to get through classes, whereas the chemists are you know very, very put off by the messiness of the cell. And so they tend to try and stick with mathematics and other chemistry-based formalisms for thinking about biochemistry. And teaching the two different populations of students was a great challenge for me. And also because the two different populations of students had very, very different backgrounds. And there was just not enough time for me to go through all of the material necessary to bring the biology students up to speed with reviewing all the OCHEM and GenCHEM that they had, by that time, at least forgotten. And then there well, similarly, there wasn't enough time in the semester for me to teach all of the basic biology and molecular biology and cellular biology content that's necessary to the chemists that actually had, had never had any of that content. Uh, prior to my course. So there's a lot of stuff that I felt was necessary for these two different populations of students to have as kind of prerequisite knowledge for appreciating the biochemistry. And of course, there's, in addition to that, this course is one where we have a lot of pre-meds that are going to be taking the MCAT and a lot of grad school bound research students that are already quite, you know, advanced in their thinking about biochemistry, mixed in with students that 
are working, you know, full time, they have families, and they just have had very little time to devote to school. And their understanding of the content is just really not solidified quite yet. So in this quadrant of students, these four, four, basically four different populations of students, uh, advanced versus not so advanced, chemists versus biologists, I really struggled to, to reach all of them. And one of the challenges I think we all face as, as faculty in higher ed is finding ways to deal with that diversity of backgrounds. And so that, for me, was the major task at hand for this class. And I struggled and experimented, you know, with all sorts of different strategies. I have a number of different tricks that I feel like have helped quite a lot. We can talk about them one by one, but one which I've stuck with since the very first, maybe second semester that I taught this class was a buddy system. So this buddy system, it's not really anything related to the virtual lab stuff, but I feel like that was a very, very helpful way to encourage students to get together, chemists with biologists, advanced students with less advanced students, and to help each other. How were the buddy pairings selected? The first exam, oftentimes I would have a bimodal distribution. So I would set a cutoff and have the more advanced students essentially pair up with the students that performed worse on the first exam. And I would allocate a certain number of points for students that either improved their own score relative to the mean, or if they already scored very well, it's to their advantage to pair up with a student that didn't do as well in the first midterm mm. and mentor them and tutor them and get their performance a little bit closer to the mean or even above the mean. I've been doing this podcast a long time, and that's the first I've heard about that idea. Perhaps it's done other places, but that's the first I've heard about it. How, how clever. It's a, yeah, it's kind of like a low-budget supplementary instruction. Well, know? and the, one of the things that as we learn about different cultures then there are cultures that are more collectivist. And so we try to force our American individualism upon them. It's every, every man, woman, and child for themselves in this learning process, you know. That's going to disproportionately have a negative effect on some of our students of color. So we, that's a, that seems like an approach that would work very well. It's had some success. I think there are definitely some students that are not interested, they mm -hmm. don't want to pair up with anyone. Yeah. They're fine by themselves and they love, you know, doing everything on their own and they just won't have it. And there are other students that are, you know, just not able to scheduling wise, it's difficult to meet up. And I've tried to deal with that in various ways using online forums of various sorts. But it definitely helps for certain classes of students that, you know, are able to schedule time to meet up and also for the mentors that are interested in giving their time and energy to helping others. And, and I think that that's a great thing to encourage. Is the buddy um, system therefore more of a voluntary basis? Yeah. So I the students that don't want to participate, they, they can still improve their own scores mm -hmm. and get just as many points, you know, assuming that they improve it relative to their previous, you know, score on the initial midterm. Yeah. So it's basically kind of a value added assessment of students continuing to improve over the course of the semester. So if a student 
does well on the second, third, fourth midterms all on their own, they get all those points. Mm -hmm. And the students that did poorly on the first midterm, they get points for improving. So it's to their advantage to find a good mentor and put effort into improving their, their scores over time. The only difference is now that the mentors also have, in addition to being able to improve their own score in the course over the, over the course of the, the semester, they can now get some extra points by helping others. One of the things I want to mention at this point, we're on episode 242, which is relevant because if you go to teachinginhighered.com slash 242, or if you're inside of your podcast player right now, you'll see these links that have been provided as a part of this episode. And one of the things that you did, which is just, it was magnificent looking at it is a e-portfolio for your 2016-17 course redesign, which you've been describing here. So this was for the general biochem lecture. And then you also have an e-portfolio, which is linked to, because I don't, I mean, you have so many wonderful things we can gain from, but we can go in here and go explore your very well-documented e-portfolio. Again, 2017-18 course mm -hmm. redesign with technology for general organic and biological chemistry lecture lab course. And I wonder, should we spend a little bit of time on that? Because this one has a little bit of a different component, or is there anything we really should sure. say before we, we move away from the biochem lecture redesign? Yeah, so the, the only thing I did, I did want to mention, and, and the buddy system was not really a virtual lab component, but the other aspect of the course redesign for the general biochemistry course was this Labster virtual labs component mm -hmm. that I incorporated. Labster is this uh, is a company that makes virtual labs for higher ed. And uh, they had designed some really nice enzyme kinetics modules that I incorporated into the course. And I felt like, you know, this would be a nice way to engage students in this lecture only course by having them actually carry out some activities, laboratory activities offline. And so I had them also perform some of these virtual labs. I assessed their performance on items that tested them at different levels. So either recall questions, which basically were more like textbook learning, regurgitation kind of questions, or more applied type questions, which asked them to take the content we were learning in lecture and apply it in, in, in a slightly more real life setting, something that I would imagine is more practical in terms of the skill sets that the students would be needing. And what I found was that the virtual lab activities actually encourage students to do better on those applied level questions. One of my favorite things when I was going through the Labster materials, and I may be going out of order here because it might have absolutely nothing to do with this course, but my favorite part was that you can have the students blow up the lab and, you know, no one yeah. gets hurt. But, but I was sort of, I don't know if it's overreaching, but it seemed like a great way to encourage experimentation in one's learning absolutely. without, of course, I mean, there there are devastating effects in the real lab situations, but Am I overreaching by saying that that's why those things are there to encourage that experimentation or is that yeah, like a bad that's example? That's a huge part of what I think students gain when they have a, a virtual lab to play with, you know, when you compare it to a hands-on lab. So a hands-on laboratory section, you have one really very few chances, one most of the time, maybe two, to get an experiment right. And you have a fixed amount of time. It has to be done in one chunk. And it's very difficult sometimes for students to 
process all the procedures and content that they're that they're you know experiencing and learning in that lab section in in one day or one couple of hours. So the virtual labs, because you can you can make mistakes, because you get feedback when you've made the mistakes on what the mistake was in a very precise way, something which I struggle in my the lab classes that I teach, sometimes it's very difficult to catch students in the act of making a mistake and correct them. You have maybe 15, 20 students in a lab section. There will be some missed opportunities there, but not so in a virtual lab. So students can make mistakes. They will get immediate feedback on those mistakes. They will be able to redo procedures, at least virtually. And there's a lot to be gained from that. Students, I think, understand and appreciate that. Is there also, you had mentioned students that are having multiple jobs and family priorities, lots of conflicting priorities in their lives. Are these ones they can participate in at any time versus if I did come to your campus, that would be a scheduled time? Yes. So that's another very important aspect of it is scheduling. So my campus is one of the smaller, newer CSUs. We've been a commuter campus for many years. We're now growing rapidly, maybe a little too rapidly, but it's very exciting times. But we have a lot of students that struggle to, they're working one, sometimes two jobs, families that they have to take care of, making it to a lab section, which oftentimes, I mean, some of the lab sections are four hours, five hours. I mean, this is large chunks of time that have to be blocked out. That too can be a huge challenge. And virtual labs, you can stop and start and continue whenever you like in the middle of the night. There's no scheduling conflict, really. It's just you having put the time aside to read the material, carry out the activities, and and, and perform the assessments. So that's a huge, huge advantage, especially for the students that we serve in the Cal State University system. Tell us a little bit about these customized take-home lab kits. Ah, yes. Okay. So now we switch gears to the general organic biochemistry course. This is a a one semester course that's primarily for pre-health science majors. So kinesiology students, pre-nursing students. And this is a one semester course in which you have to teach all of general organic and biochemistry. There's a lot of content uh, and there's a lab associated with this course, which is different from the general biochemistry course, which did not have a lab associated with it. But the lab had a series of activities that were not completely aligned, synchronized in time with the lecture material. And one of the things which I wanted to try and do was to achieve a better synchronization between the lecture and the lab content. So the timing of the labs was something which I wanted to to fix. The other thing which I was playing around with was finding a strategic way to remove certain hands-on labs, labs that the students were performing in a physical lab space here on campus, and turn them into take-home lab experiments, things that they could do at home in the comfort of their own home, on their own time, without any what I call lab space-time resources. So many of these pre-health science majors, we have a lot of them taking 
courses in our college. So this is a college of science and math, but kinesiology and, and nursing are in other colleges. And it's, it's a huge challenge to offer all of those sections of GOB chemistry together with all of the science lab courses that our college has to offer. We have a limited amount of lab space and you know limited number of fume hoods. So many of the GOB course labs, they don't really require being on campus and using fume hoods. They're not doing dangerous, very, very challenging laboratory activities. So I redesigned some of those lab activities so that they could carry them out at home using a essentially a homemade lab kit. So I picked up a number of different items on the internet, purchased some, some pocket scales, molecular modeling kits, some graduated cylinders, things that they would have used in the physical face-to-face lab. But now with a take-home lab kit, which they actually return at the end of the semester, so it can be reused. So there's a no, no real cost to the student. They can carry out a lot of these simpler procedures at home without taking up lab space time that could be used for the science majors courses, which do actually require being on campus and being in a fume hood or being perhaps a more dangerous experiment that they shouldn't be doing at home. How did they demonstrate to you that they completed the lab? Actually, I'm looking at the lab kit right now, the baking soda, the vinegar. <laughs> Do they right. show you that they completed it? Or is there, is there some measurement that I could, I could provide that would show you I did the, the experiment? So there is a lab write-up, which they have to perform and, and submit. However, we did also, in, you know, in the course of the semester, as I was tinkering with the various approaches to facilitating lines of communication between the instructor and the students that are now at home doing these experiments, right? So they don't have their lab partners to ask. They don't have the instructor to to ask some help from. And that was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And we actually ended up using an online video discussion forum system. So there's a company called VoiceThread I think there are probably other companies as well, but this is the one that that uh, I ended up using. It's an online platform for video commenting, asynchronous discussion forums, uh, but in a video format. So you could, and we did, in fact, have pre-lab you know, demonstration videos of myself and the laboratory instructor performing the lab so the students could see what the procedures were, what the steps were. They could fast forward (laughs) through some of those videos if they wanted to, if they felt comfortable with the procedures. And then they could also submit recordings of themselves asking for help and, you know, saying, you know, at this point in the process, I don't understand what, you know, what you were doing here or, you know, why we're doing this or am I doing this wrong? And post that, that question to the whole class as a video and the instructor would respond and correct the procedure. And that was actually a very, very important piece of the puzzle I learned, which I'm not exactly sure if I would do it again in exactly the same way. Mm. I think that an asynchronous forum is not the best way to do this. I would I would probably favor a synchronous forum of some sort. So that takes away some of the advantage of the scheduling issues, but it still saves this, the laboratory space time 
by allowing folks to do these experiments at home. Having the instructor there uh, as the students are performing these these tasks is is very important, and I think that that was something which we found in that in that course we designed that students did not like, and which was was probably not optimized quite yet. I imagine too that you could have synchronous, but offer a little bit more choice than a lab environment might tr- traditionally offer, even if it's you know three choices versus I would have only had one time selection yeah, I could so make. In, Just- in effect, it's possible to imagine, you know, having students attend any one of 10 mm-hmm. different online sessions where there's different instructors who can all help you through the procedure. And there's no real limit on how many students are connected to a particular instructor at a particular time. Yeah. I never actually thought about that. So thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. It's, it's a fun little puzzle to solve. And I know enough to be dangerous about VoiceThread. One of the things I think is neat about it, like some of the other tools, is is where, because discussion boards, they're, they're just too rote and they're not for teaching a complex series of things like you're trying to teach. But I like how you could have it time-based where I could say at this exact point in the lab when you asked me to do step C, um, lost. And you can see on the little dot, that's where she's having trouble. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, versus a discussion board wouldn't let me do that. Yeah, I struggled with that for, for quite some time in the general biochemistry course. And when I discovered VoiceThread and I started using it also in that course, the discussions, the peer discussion forums took on a very new direction, a new, a new way to use them, which I think the students valued. I still encourage, I have to struggle. I struggle to, to get the students to buy into the voice thread forums because it's a little bit of work getting them comfortable with making comments and figuring out how to point to things using that little doodling tool. <laughs> but ultimately, I think that that's been a valuable thing for, the, for them and for me. Before we go to the recommendation segment, I don't want to miss getting, I mean, there's so many things I wish we could talk about, but we're going to run out of time. I don't want to miss talking to you about how you have just continually pursued this teaching excellence. So you, it's not by accident. And we can go and look at these portfolios that will be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But you and I just had an idea here. How do you take the ideas as you're having them? How do you where do you keep track of them? How do you decide what to take action on? None of us can take action on every teaching idea we have. You know, wh- how do you, how That's do you have a really a s- tough one, honestly? And yeah. I, I have to say, I struggle with that. I have had to limit myself significantly because I do tend to, you know, tinker a little bit too much <laughs> with some of these exciting technologies and tools that have been developed to help students. And, and, and we are bombarded with all of them constantly. So it's a little hard to say no when there's perhaps an opportunity to help students. So it's been tough, but I think talking with people who have tried some of these tools and taking, you know, incremental steps towards implementing larger scales, some of these tools and and course redesigns, I think is the way to go. I did have to learn the hard way for the biochemistry course redesign that I did. I redesigned and I implemented one virtual lab module in the first semester that I implemented. And it seemed to work so well that I jumped the gun a little bit and I implemented with five or six different virtual labs the second semester. And I 
tried to assess the impact of all of those virtual labs in a single semester, that was too much. It was too much for the students and it was too much for me. And I think you have to very slowly wade into the pool, of course, redesign and assess things carefully, slowly and steadily. One of the things that I do is it's part of a book that's called Getting Things Done. The author's name is David Allen. And one of the practices he recommends is having a someday maybe list. You know, don't put on your task manager every idea that you have. Realistically, you're not saying I'm going to try all these things, but I allow myself during the breaks that we have summer, and I, I should put air quotes around the word breaks, but, but that's my time for experimentation. If there's a new tool, right. ed, ed tech tool I want to try, that's the time when I'll pull that list out and then prioritize to, to which ones I think could have the greatest impact because otherwise I would... I mean, people say, how do you do this podcast and you hear all this and how do you do it all? And well, the thing is, I don't. I listen to a lot of people. I let the ideas go in, but it's only a certain number of them that will bubble up. But I do think that someday maybe list keeps me a little under control so I don't go crazy (laughs) (laughs) and and drive the students crazy too, (laughs) because the students, it's too much for them to try to... Robert Talbert, who's been on the show many times before, he always talks about really minimizing the number of separate tools we're going to ask our students to learn. I think that that's really good as well. Yep, I agree. This is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations, and mine is a musical one. I have shared about this group before. They're called, it's a nonprofit called Playing for Change. And since I was going to be talking with you today, and we were going to be talking about virtual labs and immersive learning experiences. This is kind of like that, but with music. What they do is they get wonderful musicians from all around the world, and they each record their own separate track, and then they bring them together in one beautiful piece of music. And I've recommended some of their music before. Today, it's the song Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Otis Redding, and I understand it's to celebrate Otis Redding's life, music, and legacy, and this is celebrating 50 years of this classic song. And so you have Otis Redding III, Dexter Redding, Corinne Bailey Ray, Jack Johnson, just to name a few of the many musicians that participate in this great, great musical collaboration. And I'm going to play just a little tiny bit of it. I I suspect many people listening know this this wonderful song, but I'm going to play a little bit, and then we'll come back to you and, and hear about your recommendation. change everything still remains the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do so I guess I remain the same sitting here resting my pores this loneliness won't leave me alone that was Jack Johnson that we were hearing at the end of it and Andrew, who does our podcast editing, was telling me on a, another recent musical interlude I did, I always hate when you turn the volume down, but I know we've got to keep the clip short so we don't break any copyright law. <laughs> but it sure is fun to get to see the musicians. I think these are videos you definitely want to see, too, because you can see all the different parts of the world. And my daughter watches a lot of these with me, and she'll say, Mommy, where's that? Where's that? Where's that? <laughs> and to, a lot of fun. Oh, it's so much fun. It's a great one. And this is, I mean, just a wonderful celebration of, uh, of amazing musicians. So I'll pass it over to you, Combees, to share yours. I would recommend that as much as we can, we spend time with our families and our loved ones and don't forget to 
come out of our caves every once in a while. You know, I've, I've been in grading uh, in my grading cave. It's the end of the semester, so I've been grading a ton. And it's important to spend time with family and connect with those around you, your students, as well as your immediate family and extended family and, and anyone who is in your circle of friends. Don't forget to, to maintain those contacts. When we first started this conversation, you were talking about those relationships for you going to school and sometimes, you know, feeling that struggle. And it's those relationships really that carry us through those difficult times in our learning seasons. And then, of course, we need our families and loved ones to carry us through (laughs) our difficult seasons in our teaching as well. Yep, absolutely. And they reinforce each other. I think that you can be a better teacher, a better instructor, better researcher if you have those connections and contacts and support systems available to you when, when things might get a little rough. Kambi's Hamadani, thank you so much for spending time today on Teaching in Higher Ed. I've already learned so much from you, and I can't wait to dig, dig in even more on the materials that you've provided for the show notes as well. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks once again to Dr. Kambi's Hamadani. It was wonderful hearing about all of your teaching innovation and your deep desire to get learning out to as many students as possible. Thanks to all of you for listening. This is definitely going to be a set of show notes. You've got to go check out. You get them in your podcast player, but if you want to bookmark them for future reference, you'll want to go to teachingandhighered.com slash 242. And also, if you want to not have to remember to go to each one of the episode show notes, you can receive a single email each week with those show notes and also an article about teaching or productivity written by me. You can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time.